Thank you all so much for taking the time to attend today. This is a really happy day for us. It's one of my favorite work days all year. We have a few important words of appreciation before we move on. Um, we'd like to thank our Chief Nurse Executive, Susan Reeves, for her support, and our Chief Nursing Officer, Karen Clemens. We'd like to welcome and thank our partner schools, who have, some of whom have representatives here today. The University of New Hampshire, uh, the chair of the Department of Nursing is Dr. Jean Harkless. Uh, Dr. Joan Loftus at the dean of the, is the Dean of the School of Nursing at Colby Sawyer College, and we have two professors with us today, Dr. Joan Huber and Mary Beth Moran. Dr. Maureen O'Reilly is the Executive Director of the Department of Nursing at St. Anselm College, and today we have Antonia Nelson and Professor Joan Welch here visiting with us. And we also have from um, Riviera University, the Dean of the School of Nursing, um, Dr. Paula Williams, who we thank, and Professor Judy O'Hara is here today with us. So we're very appreciative that people took the time to come all this way and also to offer their support, um, which really goes on throughout the whole academic year and the summer. It's not just this um, summer time period when the students are here. We're also really delighted to have some of the parents of our Embrace students here today. Uh, it's a great opportunity to, for them to see their um, amazing daughters at, at the level that they're able to uh, perform today. I also really want to thank all of the, nursing, the nurses at DH who volunteer their time to work with the students over the summer. That's really what makes this happen, and there are an awful lot of us in the room today, and uh, we really thank you. IMBRE is the IDEA Network of Biomedical Research Excellence. This is an NIH-sponsored program designed to increase biomedical research capacity. Um, in 2009, when doctors Bob Maui and Ron Taylor wrote the original grant, Bob had the very clever idea and novel idea of including nursing in the, the plan for New Hampshire's grant. So at the time, New Hampshire was the only INBRE program in the country that included nursing. Bob worked with uh, a series of uh, directors of nursing research at DH to transform the program. Mary Jo Slattery and Jean Coffey really have made it what it is today, and Deb Hastings graciously um, oversaw the program this summer. The program has two primary goals. The first is to, was to design a research fellowship program which would expose students to a broad array of nursing research as it occurs throughout every nursing job um, that we can expose them to this summer. And secondarily, we want to encourage the students to start thinking about uh, a master's or a doctoral degree in nursing sooner rather than later. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about the role of the mentors. Um, we are involved in the program planning and actual selection of the students each year. Um, we teach didactic sessions weekly while they're um, here undergoing their education. Obviously, we direct the projects that they're working on. We help with the poster presentations, although um, if you have a student like mine, they didn't need much help. Um, they also provide, we provide them opportunities to work with other nursing um, colleagues if they're interested in a, a particular field while they're here to get some exposure. So they leave with a lot of institutional knowledge, which is good. Um, I do want to take this opportunity to do a special thanks to Carolyn Landry. We've acknowledged everyone else, but Carolyn, as project uh, program person, really um, kept everyone organized on target, and uh, we could not have done it without her. Um, some of the benefits that we've seen as we look and um, survey our students as they leave and our, our faculty, the student benefits are very uh, numerous. They, they show a high degree, they, they have told us they have a high degree of professional and personal growth. 
Um, we did a study on self-efficacy before and after the program, and it's statistically very significant that they are able to um, talk about research and quality improvement and evidence-based practice. They really have an opportunity to make meaningful contributions to our data analysis and project implementation decisions, um, and we seek that out from them and expect that from them. Uh, they witness challenges that we face uh, as full-time clinicians trying to do research, but also trying to find help doing that research, as my mentee knows very well. We have exposure to interdisciplinary approach to our patient care and meeting goals of patient care. Uh, they also have uh, exposure to men mentorship, and it's expected that they are going to pay it forward. They teach staff, they go back to their schools, talk about their program, what they did. Um, they go to national and regional meetings, and they also have an opportunity to help us uh, with our manuscript preparation, and many of them have co-authored with their mentors. They also have opportunity to seek, um, to continue their work as seniors. Uh, I have a student from last year who's going to do a senior project this year, working on another research project that we started to get off the ground when he was here. And then the final, um, but probably um, too numerous to list, but finally, they do have an uh, opportunity to come here to be employed. And when they do, they come with all the skills that they've learned, and it really enriches our workforce. Um, and we have a high degree of participation in our nurse residency program. The mentors, the, they really are too many um, to, to list, but I will give you a, a sample of some of the benefits we find. Um, we obviously have gotten to know each other as a group of uh, researchers and advanced practice people um, who we would otherwise would not probably cross paths, and that's been really enriching for all of us. We get exposure to nursing students, undergraduate nursing students. As APRNs, a lot of times we don't get that exposure, so that's a, a benefit for us. They bring us a sense of energy and vitality. As uh, Bridget said, this really is a, a shining day for us. We really have a lot of fun with them. It's a lot of work and a lot of pressure for both us and them, but it's really rewarding. And the greatest benefit is we get to do our, uh, increase our productivity in our projects, our individual projects, and we would not get it done without these guys. And it's also benefits for the institution. We work on priority projects for the institution. And as I mentioned, a high degree of these students will come here to work, right? And, and when they do, you know, they come with those skills already embedded, which is really important. Um, and it also helps the, student, the, the um, universities that participate because it increases their productivity in the research realm as well. So three schools have traditionally been involved, UNH, Colby Sawyer, and St. Anselm's, which again, um, I would like to mention is my alma mater and where my student came from. And we're pleased to have OBA uh, join us this year. Without further ado, we're gonna start with our first speaker, Shannon Murdoch, who is from UNH, and they will introduce themselves. Thank you. Welcome, and thank you for attending our presentation today. We're very excited to share what we've been working on this summer. Um, my name is Shannon Murdoch, and I'm going to be a nurse, uh, nursing, senior nursing student this fall at the University of New Hampshire. Uh, and I had the privilege of working with Dr. Bridget Logan this summer, on her, assisting her with her research project. But before I delve into that, I have the honor of introducing our program as a whole. Um, so like um, Dr. Logan said, 
um, NBRAE stands for the Idea Network of Biomedical Research Excellence, and it is part of the larger program funded by the National Institute of Health, the Institutional Development Award Program. And um, the objectives of this program are to uh, provide opportunities for students to participate, to acquire research skills, and to participate in meaningful biomedical research projects. So the program is combined, uh, comprised of two leading organizations that are considered research-intensive institutions, the University of New Hampshire and the Dartmouth-Geisel School of Medicine. And there are seven partner institutions, which are considered primarily undergraduate institutions. And um, this summer, we have a total of 15 INBRAE students that represent six of these institutions, as well as Riviera University, um, Delaware State University, and the University of California, Merced. Um, so the program is broken up into two summer experiences, the bench research, um, summer undergraduate research experience, which is comprised of um, mainly basic science research, and the nursing research program, which I'll elaborate on in a few minutes. So as you can see, we've been very busy this summer. The ISERF program is a 10-week full-time immersive summer experience that runs from June to August. And before we started any of our projects, we had extensive training in research ethics. Um, and then when we started our research, we acquired many skills and techniques that we will be able to carry throughout our careers in the research field. Um, apart from our research projects, we participated in a weekly journal club where we critically analyzed bench science and nursing um, research articles. We have been preparing to take the graduate record exam in anticipation of applying to graduate school, which we will all sit for on August 16th. Um, we all successfully published um, genomes to the NCBI, <laughs> to the NCBI database, and um, we will be presenting a poster on bioinformatics as well. Um, we have been working on our professional development, honing our um, resumes and creating CVs, also in, in anticipation of applying to graduate school. And we've been doing all this from the comforts of the Dollage Dartmouth College campus. Um, and in our free time, we have been able to explore some of the many attractions of the Upper Valley. So like um, Dr. Logan said, the Inbrae Nursing Fellowship is the only one like it in the country, providing a very unique experience for us to take part in. Each of us was assigned with a nursing mentor, and we assisted them with their research this summer. Apart from that, we were able to shadow in clinical area, areas of interest um, and able to um, experience more bedside nursing. We attended a clinical ethics committee board, me committee board meeting. Um, we were able to attend a CPHS, or a Committee for the Protection of Human Subjects, monthly meeting. So we were able to see the behind the scenes of how research projects like our own are approved for IRB approval. Um, we were able to spend a lot of time shadowing in quality improvement and patient safety and seeing different nurses' roles in that area, as well as attending a weekly nursing research roundtable, um, listening to nursing leaders here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock present their findings. And through all of these experiences, we've been able to now see the differences between bedside nursing, quality improvement and patient safety nursing, and nursing research. And now we have a broad idea of the different career paths the nurse can take in the healthcare field. So here are some pictures from the summer. For the first week of our program, the Dartmouth dorms weren't available to us. 
So Dr. Maui and Jen Smith dropped us, all 15 of us off in a big house in Vermont, kind of like a reality TV show. <laughs> um, but it was a great way to get to know everyone. We were able to, some of us, um, volunteer at the annual Quichi Balloon Festival. We got to explore the Quichi Gorge, and we had a great time that first week in Vermont. Uh, after that, we moved on to Dartmouth College campus, where we've been living for the rest of the summer in the dorms. On the left is a picture of the Barry Baker Library, which is a landmark on campus. Um, in the middle is a picture of the local rail trail, which is a great place to go running and walking. And on the right is a picture of the Connecticut River, where we've been going down for evening summer swims to cool off in the heat. And we were also able to take a trip mid-summer to Woods Hole, Mass, in Cape Cod, uh, where we toured the marine biology lab there, which was a great way to see the different specimens that they collect from the ocean um, to do scientific research on. And we were really able to see how the um, biological research being done there permeates up into the healthcare field and directly affects us as nursing researchers as well. Um, we went out onto the collection boat to see how the specimens are collected. We attended a um, scientific lecture where the whole community came out and listened, and that was a really great experience. And we also got to go to Martha's Vineyard and do some more touristy things, too. So the culmination of this whole program is a poster presentation at the annual meeting um, held at the Omni Mount Washington Resort in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, where we will present this Monday and Tuesday. The presentation is composed of a poster symposium where we'll all present our posters and our research findings. And two of us will give oral presentations, including Hannah Gopal, a nursing student on neonatal abstinence syndrome, as well as Asma Mohammed, who will be presenting on B cells. So now I'd like to share the research project that I worked on this summer, which focused on the use of clean intermittent catheterization in urologic management of patients with spina bifida. Um, so I was lucky enough to be paired with Dr. Bridget Linehan Logan, who is a nurse practitioner here in pediatric urology um, here at Dartmouth. Um, as, well as, as well as being a nurse practitioner in pediatric urology, she also sees, is one of the many providers that sees patients um, on a monthly basis at the Spina Bifida Clinic. And she also had um, myself and the other Embraer nursing students over for dinner several times, which was a great fun and we we're great, very grateful for. So in order to understand the project that we worked on, it is necessary to have a thorough understanding of the disease process. So spina bifida literally means split spine. Um, and it is a congenital neural tube defect in which the spinal cord is incompletely formed at birth, resulting in impaired sensory and motor function. Um, it has been linked to a deficiency in maternal folic acid, or folate, during early pregnancy, as well as some unknown genetic and environmental factors. The CDC um, estimates that spina bifida affects between 1,500 and 2,000 live births in the U.S. annually. Um, so as you can see here in the photos below, um, so this is an example of a spinal cord lesion. Um, this is a myelomeningocele, which is the most severe form of a spinal cord lesion. And you can see the neural elements of the spinal cord are protruding through the skin and are open to air. Um, so this would typically be closed shortly after birth, surgically, 
but um, in order to prevent infection, but the damage to the nerves is already done and that damage is irreversible. So in addition to myelomeningocele, um, meningocele is another form of the presentation of the spinal cord lesion. And um, for the purposes of this, of this study, we included um, some related disorders, lipomyelomeningocele, tethered cord, and caudal regression, or sacral agenesis, as they're related. Um, and those patients will present with the same symptoms. So the type of lesion can vary. And depending on the severity, the clinical function will also vary on a spectrum. Just like the lesion type can vary, the lesion location can also vary. So for the purposes of this study, we um, sorted them into three categories based on function. So lesions above T11, lesions between L3 and T11, and lesions below L3. Um, and as, one, as you might guess, the higher the lesion is on the spinal cord, the greater the dysfunction will be clinically. So because, these, um, because of these spinal cord lesions, the nerve transmission to the bladder is impaired, and this results in neurogenic bladder. And to keep it simple, you can categorize the types of neurogenic bladder into two categories. One, a bladder that leaks urine, and a bladder that holds urine. And a bladder that leaks urine is considered safe, while they're both abnormal, one that leaks urine is considered safe, and one that holds urine is considered unsafe, because the urine um, that is retained can travel back up the ureters into the kidneys and cause severe renal scarring and damage. And renal disease has just historically been the leading cause, one of the leading causes of death in patients with spina bifida. However, with the introduction of clean intermittent catheterization as an intervention in urologic management, the life expectancy of patients with spina bifida has been significantly increased. That doesn't necessarily mean that every patient with spina bifida will need CIC. So currently, there are two schools of thought on this intervention. One is a proactive approach, where a provider will initiate CIC from birth across all patients to, um, rather than risk renal damage. And the other school of thought is the expectant management approach in which a provider will closely monitor the individual for symptoms and initiate CIC based on that. So, our, so this is the national guideline, which aligns with the uh, proactive management approach. Um, so CIC is recommended for all patients with neurogenic bladder um, shortly after birth. And our study sought to um, identify whether or not lesion type and lesion location could be used to predict whether an infant will need CIC from birth. And hopefully this predictive ability will help providers anticipate a need for CIC, it will help enable more complete teaching of CIC to families, and it will minimize unnecessary catheterization, especially in newborns and infants. So in order to identify um, any kind of relationship between lesion type, lesion location, and CIC status at age one and age five. I first completed a literature review of the relevant information on the topic currently published. Um, I then collected data from patient charts. We conducted an electronic retrospective chart review. Um, and then I converted that data into usable numbers for statistical analysis. So we were lucky enough to have the help of Synergy and Dr. Wenyan Zhao in our statistical analysis. And um, as you can see, 
these tables hold a lot of information, and this step was really crucial in um, allowing us to pull conclusions out of the data that we found. So there are many interesting findings from the study, uh, but we were able to pull out three primary findings um, to present to you. So first, the highest lesion locations, so like we talked about, above T11, and the most severe lesion type, which is a myelomeningocele, have the highest rate of catheterization at age one and age five. So across the board, that was 100%. Conversely, the lower lesion locations, so below T11, combined with the less severe lesion types, have the lowest rates of catheterization at age one and age five. Um, so consistent with our original hypothesis, we found that using lesion type and lesion location can guide provider decision-making in uh, about CIC recommendations, and this supports an expectant management approach, which is separate from the guideline, which supports a proactive management approach. So during this research process, um, I was able to witness from start to finish um, everything that needs to be done to produce findings. Um, so I learned a lot about the ethics of research and um, the importance and how to apply for IRB approval. Um, I learned a lot about using data resources like databases to um, conduct a literature review on the information about the topic that's already been published. I learned about data collection and how to present my findings scientifically. Uh, in addition to this, I was able to shadow clinically in areas of interest. So I shadowed on the hematology oncology floor as well as the emergency department. And then I also got, was able to shadow um, Dr. Logan in outpatient pediatric urology and the spina bifida team in the clinic, which was really integ integral to um, providing a background before I even started the research process and really helped me um, get a deeper understanding of what I was researching. Um, and overall, throughout the summer, I realized that while research is important for advancements in healthcare, it is also really important for providers to continue in research to get a deeper understanding of um, knowledge and to provide best care for our patients. So I'm very grateful for the experience I've had in Embray. It has been an unforgettable summer, and it has absolutely solidified my um, ambitions of pursuing a professional degree in nursing. Um, and I know now that I absolutely want to continue in nursing research, and I hope to continue this project my senior year as part of my honors project at UNH. Um, I'd like to say a big thank you to all the people that helped me get to here, where I was able to apply for the program, and also who supported me this summer. Um, first, a big thank you to the Spina Bifida team for their valuable insight into our project and valuable discussions, um, as well as for letting me shadow them in the Spina Bifida clinic. Um, thank you to Synergy for helping us with our statistical analysis. Um, thank you to our support systems here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Um, including Heather Blunt, who helped me a lot with um, the research of um, already published articles and conducting a thorough literature review. A big thank you again to Carrie Landry for organizing everything, um, and as well as to Dr. Deb Hastings, who was a big advocate for us while we were here this summer. And a thank you to the UNH Nursing Department for preparing me well and helping me with the application process. And, of course, our fearless leaders at New Hampshire Inbrae, Donna Porter, Jen Smith, and Dr. Maui. And um, last but not least, my fellow Inbrae nursing students for making this a fun as well as an educational summer.
Thank you. And I'd now like to introduce my colleague, Hannah Gopal. Thank you, Shannon. My name is Hannah Gopal. I'm a senior nursing student at Colby Sawyer College. And this summer, I was working on research called Neonatal Abstinence Syndrome, Nurses' Perspectives of Care Delivery and Assessment Tools. And I was lucky enough to be paired with three amazing mentors this summer. Brianna White is the clinical nurse supervisor in pediatric specialties. Dean Jarvis, the pediatric research nurse, and Mary McNally, a pediatric research coordinator. They provided me with so much support this summer, and I couldn't have done it without them. And before I dive into my research, I'm just going to explain a little bit about why it's important and why it means so much. So as you've probably heard, the opioid epidemic has continued to rise. And in 2015, New Hampshire alone had over 400 cases of deaths related to overdose, and a majority of those were related to opioids. And in a national study from 2000 to 2009, we saw an increase of maternal opioid dependence, as well as an increase in neonatal abstinence syndrome. So you may be wondering, what is neonatal abstinence syndrome? When mothers are exposed to illicit or prescribed substances during their pregnancy, that drug can get transferred over to the, to the baby. So the substance is passed through the, through the placenta and to the baby. And when that baby's, baby is born, it has to withdraw from the substance. There have been a lot of studies that look at nurses' perceptions of caring for this unique population, but none have actually looked at the assessment tools that they use to assess the babies. The Finnegan Neonatal Assessment Scoring System is the assessment tool that has been used historically. It has been used since 1975, and it um, was created by Finnegan and colleagues. And essentially, based on all these different symptoms that you can see on the board, a baby is scored and given a number. And based on that number, pharmacologic treatment with morphine will be initiated or not. And it was just and it was decided by Finnegan and colleagues that a score of an eight would warrant that morphine treatment because in their experience, babies that scored below an eight would recover well on their own. And despite the Finnegan tool being used for over 40 years, it has never actually been reviewed for the reliability or validity. So it's important that we incorporate and think about other tools that we can use. So recently at Colby Sawyer, or excuse me, recently at Dartmouth Hitchcock, we've incorporated the new Eat Sleep Console tool. And over the past two years, this has been rolled out in the different units that see neonatal abstinence syndrome. And in contrast to the Finnegan, the Eat Sleep Console tool focuses on a non-pharmacologic approach. It looks at eating, sleeping, and consoling. And it also incorporates a large caregiver presence, a team approach, and those non-pharmacologic interventions like swaddling, skin-to-skin, -skin, and rooming in for babies. And when this tool was implemented at Yale New Haven Children's Hospital, we saw great results. The length of stay was decreased from 23 days in the hospital to just six. 
Instead of 92% of babies being treated with morphine, only 12% were, were. And of those 12%, when morphine was introduced, they used nine doses as opposed to 240. So as you can imagine, this also decreased the cost of care quite a bit. I conducted my research using qualitative interviews. It was really important for me to do this because I had no idea what sorts of themes the nurses um, had and what their days were like. So I conducted 20 different semi-structured interviews on the intensive care nursery, the birthing pavilion, and pediatrics in PICU. And I asked these nurses questions like, tell me about your experiences working with babies with NAS and their family. Compare and contrast the Finnegan and the Eat Sleep Console tool. Which tool do you prefer and why? And I recorded these interviews, I transcribed them later, and with the help of my mentors, we analyzed them for themes. The first realm of my results focused on care delivery. Nurses described their days caring for NAS babies using words like busy, stressful. They said time was a challenge, and that could especially be challenging when other patient assignments also require significant time. It could also be more challenging when the family wasn't present or there was a lack of cuddler volunteers or LNA support. Nurses were sometimes they empathized why parents couldn't be at the bedside, but other times they didn't quite understand and that could be frustrating for them. Nurses also expressed that parental buy-in to the tool and their presence at the bedside itself could be a challenge. And they had a, there was a need for increased education for the parents, both before their hospital stay and at the time of their hospitalization. So these are quotes that I collected during interviews. One nurse said, I feel like parent involvement does help the babies more, and also getting them involved one-on-one -on -one can help a lot. Babies with NAS need that TLC, and if the parent isn't here to provide it, they really don't get it. And another nurse said, the role of being a caregiver to a patient goes beyond the bedside with the baby. We need to educate the parents so they know what to do when they go home. The other realm of my results focused on assessment tools. I asked the nurses to talk about the Finnegan and the Eat Sleep Console tool. Nurses used words to describe the new Eat Sleep Console tool. They said it was holistic, subjective, and it leaded to less pharmacologic management. They also recognized that parents preferred the Eat Sleep Console tool because it was less invasive and it opened communication lines between the patient and the family. Nurses also had a few concerns for the new tool. Safe sleep was a major concern. Parents were staying up because they knew how to console their babies, but they also weren't getting any sleep themselves. And that's a major concern from a nursing perspective because we don't want parents to fall asleep holding their babies in their arm. There was also a barrier with the documentation of the tool, and that may need some adjustments in the future. There's also no straightforward forward number with the Eat Sleep Console tool, as there is with the Finnegan, which made it challenging for nurses to trend the results. The Eat Sleep Console tool also relies on parent involvement, which can be tricky if the parents aren't at the bedside. So a few more quotes from, nursing, from nurses. The Eat Sleep Console tool is a more holistic way of seeing how the baby is withdrawing, as opposed to being clinical. 
I feel like it's covering more of the baby's needs. And another nurse spoke to relying on parents for their assessment. It's sometimes tricky to go by what the parent says, and sometimes the parent isn't that reliable. So we have to base our nursing assessments on parents because we can't be in the room 24-7. So qualitative research is really important for nursing. We can get the nurses' opinions, their perspectives, and it allowed me to just have a conversation, ask clarifying questions, and really understand what it was like for a nurse to care for these babies and understand how they use the tools in their daily practice. So along with my research this summer, I had a lot of other great experiences. Before I even stepped on the units to conduct my interviews, I shadowed in the pediatric unit, the birthing pavilion, and the intensive care nursery, and I got to see what it was like to care to work with these nurses, what it was like to care for patients, and that was really beneficial. I also shadowed in a few other areas of my interest, the medical ICU. I shadowed Dr. Bridget Logan in pediatric urology to learn the role of a nurse practitioner. I shadowed the nurse educator role. And on the other side of my research, I shadowed at the addiction treatment program and the Monson Recovery Group. And this was really beneficial because I got to see what it's like for a mom to live with addiction and be in recovery and also support their family. Some of my ma major accomplishments this summer were submitting an IRB proposal. That was definitely a challenge, but completely worth it. Um, I have firsthand experience because of that on the full nursing research process from collecting my background information, conducting interviews with nurses, and sharing my results. So after I graduate from Colby Sawyer, I'd like to enter the nurse residency program here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock in an area of critical care. And after that, I'd like to pursue um, an education in nursing education. So working with nurses this summer really just solidified that I'd like to go into nursing education after I graduate. And I wouldn't have been able to do everything this summer without the help of so many different people. Um, my amazing mentors, Brianna, Dean, and Mary, for supporting me every way through this journey. Um, Deb Hastings and Carrie Landry for checking in with us every week and making sure things go smoothly. Dr. Maui, Jennifer Smith, and Donna Porter for showing us the other side and introducing us to students from all different disciplines. And of course, all of my professors at Colby Sawyer for teaching me the importance of research and encouraging me to apply for this program. And of course, all of my amazing Embry students, we started out as strangers, and I think we've made some pretty good friendships this summer. And I'd now like to introduce Rebecca Cruz. Good afternoon. My name is Rebecca Cruz, and I'm a rising senior at Revere University. This summer, I got to work on the continuation of the research study Enhancing Bone Marrow Transplant Care and Survivorship Through the Patient Experience. During these 10 weeks, I was supported by an amazing team who I called the Dream Team, inspired by the One West motto, One Team, One Dream. Our incredible Dream Team leader is my mentor, Lisa Wessinger, who's an oncology nurse at the HISCU unit and is also a leader for Team Prouty, which um, for excuse me, Prouty Team Hope, which I will dive into more details, more into the presentation. Now, before I dive into my research results, 
that I got this summer, I wanted to give a background on what the bone marrow transplant procedure is. This procedure infuses healthy new stem cells into the body to replace damaged or diseased ones. The first step in this process is a series of pretests in order to determine if the patient's healthy enough to get these new stem cells. Next is the actual retrieval of the bone marrow, either from the patient themselves or from a donor. And if it's from a donor, it may take several weeks or months in order to find um, that match. The next step is a conditioning process, which is with chemotherapy or radiation in order to eradicate any cancer cells and um, also to make room for the new stem cells. In this whole procedure, the patients are facing some extreme major risks, such as graft-versus-host, which is when the new stem cells see the patient's tissues or organs as foreign and starts to attack them. They also face the risk of infections, infertility, new cancers, or even death. These patients um, not only are facing these major risks, but face a change in lifestyle, diet, exercise in order to stay healthy, but also the emotional toll of whether or not this transplant worked. This, in, um, excuse me, patients who go through this experience um, come out with two desires. One, to tell their story in order to move on in their survivorship journey, and a second to give back so others can learn from their experience. This inspired the team in, 20, in January 2016 to provide that mechanism for BMT patients and caregivers. They did this by doing face-to-face -face interviews and also doing some questionnaires. Right now, in the wraps, they're creating patient-centered holistic case studies embedding that patient voice in order to educate future BMT nurses and providers. The goal of both is that we hope to enhance the survivorship survivorship experience of these patients. This summer, I focused on whether or not um, <clears throat> this study did or would have a positive or negative impact on the survivor and caregiver's journey. In order to evaluate this, I designed a 10-question survey for the patients after getting IRB approval and reconsenting the patients. Um, we were able to mail out the surveys and with the return envelope within it. So we gave them five to seven days in order to send responses back. These incredible individuals were able to send us back responses in under five days, just showing that incredible support they have for this study. Now, I'm not gonna show you the results for every question or we'll be here for another hour. So I'm just gonna show some of the results I found most interesting. One question I asked was whether or not during this study recalling their BMT experience increased or decreased stress or anxiety. With the patient response, it was about half and half with 40% saying it decreased, 40% saying increased, and 20% unsure. The patient's comments throughout the survey reflected that it was great to comment on their experience and to help others, but it's really difficult to recall that experience. Caregivers, on the other hand, 75% reported that it increased anxiety, 0% reported a decrease, while 25% were not sure. Now, the caregivers reported that this anxiety was minimal, and it only occurred the day before they started reflecting on their experience, but they felt it was really good to get the feelings out and to move on in their journey. The next question that I asked was whether or not the study had a positive or negative impact on their overall health and recovery. 60% of the patient response reported a positive impact, while 40% were not sure of this. 
Overall, the patients were happy to share, but some were not sure if it had that negative or positive impact. Caregivers, on the other hand, 75% reported a positive impact, while 25% reported unsure. From the caregiver comments, they said that they got to see a little extra strength and positivity shine from their partners, and also stated they felt it was good for their partner's mental health to talk about their experience. The last question I wanted to talk about was whether or not it, they felt it was beneficial or counterproductive for other BMT patients and caregivers to be interviewed as part of the standard hospital experience. Patient response reported 60% were not sure of this and 20% considered it beneficial. From the comments, they said overall they believe it's a great opportunity to be able to tell your story. But um, it always depends on the person, since this is an individual choice. Caregivers, on the other hand, reported 100% they believed it was beneficial. Again, they said it's a very personal decision, but they felt it was beneficial in some way for every person. During these 10 weeks, I was able to truly appreciate the work that is put into evidence-based practice and research. Um, it takes a lot of months to be able to get things started and maybe even a year through approval, but it's also better the care for patients' families like Lisa Wessinger is doing for these patients. Um, another thing that I learned is the importance of supporting your fellow colleagues, whether it be by answering surveys, by saying comments on your unit, or by joining a hospital committee, all in favor to create a safer, better environment for the patients, but not only for them, but also our fellow colleagues. Another thing I learned is that you can truly do anything in nursing. There's no limitation. <laughs> um, I learned it can go from technology to qualitative research to um, quality improvement and even pediatric urology, which I was just exposed to this summer. Um, so my plans after graduation has always been revolved around my city back home, Lawrence, Massachusetts, which is majority a Hispanic population, being Latina myself and also um, how my community has supported me all my life, I really want to give back to them. So my plan is to work in my hometown hospital, either on the pediatric unit or the emergency department, to then after two years of working, go back to school, get my DNP, and um, either get it in family or pediatrics to become a nurse practitioner, to then work in an outpatient clinic in my hometown. Um, this experience has inspired me to continue to find nursing research opportunities, quality improvement, volunteer opportunities, joining my state CNA, and joining any hospital committees. Committees, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, people who know me very well know I'm very indecisive, especially with food. <laughs> but um, that's only because when I'm introduced to new things, I find everything interesting and I fall in love very easily. So who knows? Maybe a combination of oncology and pediatrics, or maybe school nursing, um, nursing education, or maybe even working in the PICU. Before I conclude my presentation, I wanted to share with you all my most memorable experience throughout this summer, and it was being able to volunteer at the 12th Annual Indoor Prouty. And with, I was able to volunteer along with three other Embrace students. The Indoor Prouty truly embodies the spirit of One West, one of hope, courage, and strength. 
And to be able to be a part of that day, one of music, relaxation, great snacks and food, and um, even a fun little raffle that they had for the patients that day. It was just great to feel that family bond within that unit. Now people might say, oh, that's only because it was a special day. Well, I'm here to tell you that's not true. I had the opportunity to shadow on the HISCU unit on a night shift, and I was able to see up close that nurse and patient relationship, how trusting and supportive it was through this tough moment in their lives. And it was just unbelievable to see and truly inspiring. Um, within this day, there was a friendly competition between the nurses. Um, they decorated their pods based on the one team, one dream motto. And the winner, based on the patient voice, was the ocean-themed pod. So now they have bragging rights for the rest of the year. <laughs> I truly want to thank my mentor, Lisa Wessinger. You are truly an inspiration and my role model, and I will carry these memories with me throughout my nursing career. I also want to take the, thank the research team for welcoming me with open arms since day one. And I also want to thank the other in-brain nursing research mentors who have each given me a little something to take with me throughout my nursing career journey. And I want to thank Dr. Deb Hastings and also Carrie Landry for always checking in on us, our emotional state, every week and providing us with food too. And I also want to thank the InBray leaders, Dr. Maui and Jennifer Smith, for organizing this program and for taking us to that awesome trip in Cape Cod. That was fantastic. And also the One West team for supporting my presence there and for letting me use their coffee a lot. That was great. <laughs> and I also want to thank um, my professors and my dean from Revere University, Dean Paula Williams, sent me the email to apply to this amazing opportunity, and I'm so grateful to her. And I also want to thank my professors, Diane Droutman, Judy O'Hara, who's here today, and Janine Real and Judith Stanford, who each gave me supporting words and helped me through the application process. Thank you. Introduce my fellow colleague, Valerie Power. Thank you, Rebecca. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Valerie Power, and I am a nursing student at St. Anselm College. It's my pleasure today to talk to you about my summer research experience and my research project. I would first like to introduce my nursing mentor, Dr. Elizabeth McGrath. She is a nurse practitioner in the Medical Oncology Gastrointestinal Program here at the Norris Cotton Cancer Center. Additionally, she is an assistant professor of medicine at the Dartmouth Geisel School of Medicine. Professor, er, Dr. McGrath has many interests professionally, including palliative medicine, which is what my research this summer was focused on. So before I get into the specifics about my research project, I would like to provide you with some background about why palliative care is important for pancreatic cancer patients. So first, pancreatic cancer is the third most common cause of cancer-related deaths. There's a poor survival rate due to the fact that most patients are diagnosed with advanced disease and they don't experience many signs or symptoms of this type of cancer. 
So the survival rate is five, the five-year survival rate is only 8%. So from this, you can see that there, the pancreatic cancer patients can experience a lot of distress. 20 to 52% of cancer patients have significant distress based on recent research. In order for practitioners to understand whether or not their patients are experiencing distress, they can use a screening tool. In 2014 at the Norris Cotton Cancer Center, the screening tool shown here was implemented and it is a self-reporting tool that the patient reports on and it's similar to the pain scale where it is labeled from zero to 10 with a score of four or above being clinically significant. So like I said, this assists providers in identifying and supporting their patients in distress. So in order to address distress, the care team can implement early palliative care involvement. Palliative care is, provides a holistic focus on improving the patient's quality of life. Palliative care is not the same as hospice care, as hospice care is only implemented towards the end of a patient's life. Palliative care takes a holistic approach and looks at many things like pain management, social aspects of care, spiritual care, and many other things. So early palliative care involvement has been shown to be beneficial for patients with advanced cancer, poor prognoses, and significant distress burden. When palliative care is implemented, it results in fewer medical interventions, improved quality of life, decreased depression, and improved survival. So my specific project this summer was a retrospective chart review, and my mentor and I had a couple aims that we, would, we set out to complete. So the first one is we wanted to understand the pancreatic cancer population here at the Norris Cotton Cancer Center. Additionally, we wanted to assess the current utilization of palliative care for the pancreatic cancer patients. We wanted to examine the relationship between patient distress and palliative care involvement. And we also wanted to discover ways to improve upon the current practice. So the methods for my study included, I conducted a chart review of over 105 pancreatic cancer patients that were seen at the Norris Cotton Cancer Center for treatment between April 2016 and June 2018. <laughs> So I went into the patient charts one by one individually, 105 in total, and I collected over 25 categories of demographic and care-related data from these charts. And I organized this data using Excel and then analyzed the statistical findings. And I'd also like to give a special thanks to Mr. Eric Power for being a mentor with regard to Excel and helping me use Excel, navigate Excel, and know how to analyze my data. So to dive into some of the results from this retrospective chart review, we discovered a lot about our patient demographics and this gives us an understanding of the patient population being treated at the Norris Cotton Cancer Center. So we found that the population was mostly older adults who were a majority white, 70% have significant other in their life, a majority were retired, and also a majority were on Medicare as their primary insurance. So here on this pie chart to the left, I calculated the cancer stage at the initial oncology consult. So this shows that 
54% of our patients received a diagnosis of stage four initially. And this is significant because this is an advanced cancer diagnosis. And then additionally, with regard to distress screenings at the Norris Cotton Cancer Center, 59% of the patients from my retrospective chart review were not screened for distress. And there could be a multitude of reasons why this occurred. This is a new tool that was implemented in the last two years, and later I will get into um, what we might do from these results. But of the patients that were screened for distress, we found that 63% of these patients did have a clinically significant distress score. So this reveals that distress screening really needs to be a priority and that there may be patients with clinically significant distress that are not being identified. So the graph in front of you shows the relationship between the initial palliative care consult occurrence and the patient stage of cancer. This reveals that patients with a more advanced cancer stage, like two or three or stage four, had higher rates of palliative care consults. But there's still room for improvement because as you can see, for example, for stage four patients, 35% never received a palliative care consult. This next graph in front of you shows the relationship between the initial palliative care consult occurrence and the distress score of a patient. So palliative care is a resource that can be very beneficial for patients facing clinically significant distress, and the data reveals that patients with higher distress scores received palliative care at higher rates. So this is the clinically significant score over four, and 89% of those patients who received that high distress score did have a palliative care consult. So I also looked at, within the GI oncology team, what types of providers were giving the palliative care referrals. So we found that 48% of the referrals were from nurse practitioners. So we may be wondering, why is this? There are a multitude of reasons why this might be occurring, but one reason that I thought of is that nurse practitioners have a philosophy to approach the patient from a holistic standpoint and to treat all aspects of the person. Additionally, the nurses, um, the RNs that administer distress screening, they go and meet with the NPs to discuss the results, and from there, a referral can happen. So the last set of data I'd like to show you is the relationship between patient cancer stage and distress score. For understandable reasons I outlined previously, patients with more advanced cancer had higher rates of clinically significant distress scores. Stage two and three, 71% of the patients had a clinically significant distress score, and then of stage four, 65% had a clinically significant distress score. So from this retrospective chart review, we can come to a couple of conclusions. I actually have a lot more conclusions that I didn't include on here, but these are the main points. So we would like to identify and address nursing barriers to conducting distress screening. And this is important because we wanna make sure that all our patients in distress are receiving palliative care involvement, and we cannot ensure that if we do not know what the patient's distress level is.
Additionally, we want to increase the rate of distress screening for pancreatic cancer patients, and that can be done by identifying barriers. And we would like to conduct follow-up distress screening after the initial palliative care consult to ensure that the palliative care involvement is helping to decrease patient distress. And lastly, we would like to explore creating a system for automatic palliative care referral so that no patients slip through the cracks and that all patients can have this holistic involvement within their cancer treatment. So now I'd like to talk about my experience as a nursing research fellow. This program overall really expanded my knowledge of nursing research. I had the opportunity to have experiential learning and real-life application of research, and from this I gained a more holistic idea of how nurses of varying levels can be involved in research. And also, I developed a greater under, or appreciation of nursing research as the basis of nursing knowledge and evidence-based practice. So in addition to focusing on nursing research this summer, I did have the opportunity to participate in Clinical observations, one I would like to highlight is my time that I spent in the palliative care clinic. I thought that this experience was instrumental to my research as I got to experience the philosophy of palliative care firsthand and get to see how the providers care for their patients in that manner. I additionally was able to grow my professional network. I met so many professionals, nursing and interdisciplinary professionals while I was here at DHMC, so that was great. And I, I also developed professionally through mentorship. My mentor, Dr. McGrath, has been great and she really has inspired me to ensure that I take a holistic standpoint to care of patients in my future nursing career, so thank you. And so I've been exposed to a lot of different nursing career paths, and uh, my main interests at this point are nursing research, and I'm also very interested in clinical ethics from my background at St. Anselm College in philosophy and ethics. I definitely want to get involved in that area as a nurse in the future. And my experience at DHMC this summer has really solidified my goal to pursue higher education. And so in a year from now, once I pass the NCLEX, this is what my credentials are gonna look, at, look like. But in about five to 10 years from now, who knows where my career will take me. <laughs> So I have many people to thank for preparing me for and supporting me through this entire summer experience. So first and foremost, I'd like to thank Dr. McGrath for being a wonderful mentor and for being a role model and an inspiration for me and setting me up for a great career in nursing. And I'd also like to thank Dr. Bridget Logan for taking an individual interest in each of the nursing students and checking up on us and having us over at your house for dinner multiple times. Thank you for that. I'd also like to thank Deb Hastings, Dr. Deb Hastings, and Carrie Landry for helping make the Engray experience for nursing students very enriching and for coordinating all of our experiences here at DHMC. And from St. Anselm College, I'd specifically like to thank Dr. Nelson and Professor Bisson for providing me with recommendations to participate in this program. And I'd also like to thank all the other nursing faculty from St. A's that have brought me to this point. 
And last but not least, within the Enbrae program, I'd like to thank Dr. Maui, Jennifer Smith, and Donna Porter for doing all the behind-the-scenes work to make this program the enriching experience that it was. And I'd also like to thank my fellow Enbrae research students, both nursing and bench students, for making this a very memorable summer experience. So in conclusion, on behalf of my fellow nursing research students, I would like to give a big thank you to the Dartmouth-Hitchcock community for their personal investment in our growth, learning, and development as future nursing professionals. We are honored to have been selected for this invaluable opportunity to learn from and be mentored by many professionals who have invested their careers in nursing. Thank you.